Are you being influenced? Well, if you watched the blockbuster film in the last decade, well, then there's a chance it has been influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, here's the reality. The CCP may be running the largest influence campaign in history. Now, in Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, well, investigative reporter Tiffany Meyer reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. And for a limited time, you can watch the first 10 minutes for free when you go to the website, hollywoodtakeover.com slash Sean, S-E-A-N. Hey, we're all looking to save, especially on medical bills, but where do you start? Now, unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings, well, it can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and they flag errors like overbilling or wrong codes and fraud. And you can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Now, saving starts with knowing where to look. Go to their website. It's HealthLock.com today before you see any other healthcare provider. Hey, what if your home's title, which is the legal document that proves you own your home, is in some criminal's name? Well, that's called home title theft, and criminals all over the world can find your home's title online, and then they'll forge your signature, they'll take out loans against your home, or even worse, sell your home. Now, how do you know some criminal is not taking over the title to your home? You can find out with sign up at HomeTitleLock.com and use the promo code Sean, S-E-A-N. Let not your heart be troubled. You are listening to the Sean Hannity Radio Show Podcast. Hey, take control of your family's future with an estate plan bundle at LegalZoom.com. Now, whether it's a will or a living trust, you work with an independent attorney now available in 48 states on a plan that works best for you. And since LegalZoom is not a law firm, well, you're not going to get charged by the hour. So get an estate plan bundle at LegalZoom.com today. Just use Hannity One when you check out and save even more. LegalZoom.com. Donald Trump mentioned Peter Schweitzer, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Clinton Cash. He will be back on the program later in the program today. We're learning a lot of new details as it relates to the Orlando shooter. He may very well have had an accomplice And, of course, our attorney general is saying our most effective response to terror and hatred is is love. We got surveillance video showing the terrorists shooting wounded people. Uh, We'll get to that. And, of course, the redaction idiocy. I pledge allegiance to redacted. Uh, I pledge allegiance to redacted. And I'm sure he didn't say God. I'm sure I'm pretty sure he said Allah. Considering we now know the redaction was the Islamic State, and may God know, I think it said Allah, and the administration has a history of removing Allah uh, from when they have any type of uh, interpretation out of the Arabic. Anyway, I pledge allegiance to omitted. I pledge allegiance to omitted, and may God, really Allah, protect on behalf of omitted. Wow. All we need is love. That's all we need. By the way, recovered phones have recordings of the Orlando Jihadi talking to co-conspirators regarding tactics. We have a Senate study that shows 65 percent of terrorists convicted in the U.S. are first generation immigrants. We have an Orlando terrorist friend saying I contacted the FBI about this guy. Nobody paid attention. Now we're going to tell you the tragic story about a five year old girl raped 
by two migrants. Uh, where is this? Out in Idaho. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. There's actually an eyewitness that saw the whole thing. Now, I say that to you on the very day after John Kerry went out public and John Kerry made the assertion on his own that, in fact, migrants, refugees making it through the screening process pose no greater risk than any other group. There is absolutely no evidence, my friends, zero evidence. Zero. That refugees who make it through this yeah. arduous process it's not arduous. pose any greater threat to our society than the members of any other group. And it is important for people to know that. We need He's, to remember right, that I, I, bigoted and hateful rhetoric towards Muslims plays right into the hands of the terrorist recruiters who propagate the lie. It plays into the hands of people who propagate the lie that America is at war with Islam, when in fact there is no country on earth where Muslims enjoy more freedom than in the United States of America. You know, Allah, Akbar, Allah, Akbar. Yeah, the guy sang that next to John Kerry after he was done lying to you. Well, that's not what our CIA director, Brennan, just said this week. That's not what our FBI director said. That's not what our assistant FBI director said. That's not what our State Department spokesman said. That's not what our U.S. Director of National Intelligence said. That's not what uh, the former envoy to defeat ISIS has said. He's lying. Why, so why lie? Why do these people lie? Zero evidence. Well, tell that to the family of the five-year-old girl. Where was that rape? It was in Idaho, right? Good grief. And what they do is they're sneaking them in this town and that town and that town and this town and that town. And Hillary Clinton wants a 550% increase in the numbers of refugees we're having in spite of all of the intelligence officials. By the way, there were three kids. Two of them raped the girl, stripped her down naked, raped this little girl. We got an eyewitness that actually saw it. And the third kid is sitting there filming this girl being raped. Yeah, migrant, immigrant. Excuse me. What did I say? I said that if one person dies as a result of Hillary and Obama's policy, they'd have blood on their hands. I hold them responsible because they're not listening to James Clapper, James Comey, Michael Steinbeck, uh, James Clapper, General John Allen, uh, the House Homeland Security chairman and all these other people. They refuse to listen to them. Here's an 89 year old woman eyewitness of the five year old getting raped. He's out there playing with a camera, taking pictures. And I thought, does that kid never see a horse machine or something before? I'll go see what he's taking pictures for. And so when I went out there, there was trouble. And the little girl and the boys were, the boys were being mean to my little girl. Now, when and you opened up the door of the laundry room, what did you see? The boys with no clothes on and the little girl. Huh? Did you, were they touching the little girl? Yeah, I guess so. They were doing enough that nobody wanted to be around her because they even peed on her. What did she say? Peed on her? Oh, my gosh. They urinated on the girl, too. Oh, excuse me. If it's, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that on, on radio. Thank you very much. Now, last night, we saw the modern-day Democratic Party of Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Clinton on full display 
angry, petulant, radicalized, catering to radical groups like the Occupy movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Bernie Sanders movement. This is what happened when you what happens when you elect a guy that learned at the altar of communist Frank Marshall Davis, an Alinskyite disciple, an acorn organizer that went to Reverend Wright's church for 20 years and started his political career in the home of Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, two unrepentant domestic terrorists. And by the way, Hillary herself is also an Alinskyite disciple, radical, you know, in her own way. And so the Democrats, they don't want to say radical Islam. They want, they go through the admissions. You know, oh, we can't say, well, I'm committed to. Hang on a second. I got to get this right because you can't even make this stuff up. It's so dumb and so stupid. But, you know, they're out there denying the most simple and the most basic parts of actually what happened here. And that is you have somebody that is sympathetic and says they're sympathetic to ISIS. As long as you look at the non-redacted version that is inspired by radicalism. And then their answer is, well, let's have more gun control. And our most effective response to terror is unity, compassion and love, Loretta Lynch said. So how does that result? Well, Democrats angry. They can't take away your weapons. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're in San Bernardino, God forbid, and you watch this shooting unfold, and in both San Bernardino and Orlando at the Pulse nightclub, both you know, in both instances, the terrorists stopped to reload. Well, that would mean somebody that maybe had a legal weapon and the ability to use it that was in that room had an opportunity to save lives. But, of course, if you listen to Democrats, they were chanting last night, no bill, no break, as Paul Ryan was calling for a vote. Then they were singing, we shall overcome. The only one that had enough courage to step up and try and remind them it's radical Islamic terrorism was our buddy Louis Gomert. Let's play some of the madness from last night. On House Joint Resolution 88, the clerk will report the title of the joint resolution. House Joint Resolution 88, Joint Resolution The question is, will the House on reconsideration pass the joint resolution, the objections of the president to the contrary notwithstanding, the gentleman from Minnesota, Mr. Klein, is recognized for one hour. Just a vote. With equal time, I'm talking about 
Islam. Radical Islam killed these poor people. No fly, no gun. No It's, it's, it's like we're becoming. You ever see these countries where their legislators break out in fistfights? This is what America is now descending into now that the party of Hillary and Obama have now taken complete hold. There used to be a time where there were moderate Democrats. Remember, Joe Lieberman, they, they went after him. He actually was a, a liberal Democrat on social issues, but he believed in national security. And because of that, they ran him out of the party. He had to run independent to win. And then he's still aligned with these people. I don't know why he did, but he did. Or, you know, the Scoop Jackson Democrats, Blue Dog Democrats, they're all gone. Zell Miller, years ago, left the party. So you got this Democratic sit-in, this whole gun control agenda. I think it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, we've made points repeatedly on this program. And, you know, John Lott's been on this program many times. You know, all of these mass killings, you know, from the Charleston killer, the Aurora killer to others, they choose as their targets the places that are what? Gun-free zones. In other words, when they case out places they want to strike, they stay away from places like certain colleges and airports that have security that would make their killing spree far more difficult to achieve. And in the 2012 Aurora killer case... He chose the one theater that did not allow concealed weapons. And other mass killers, we have learned after the fact, you know, mock the idea of gun-free zones. You know, my point is that in the context of, of this madness that unfolded last night, if you haven't seen it, we'll show you on Hannity tonight, is that the real aim should be to save lives rather than advance an ideology. You know, that's what they should be arguing for. In many cases, that would be concealed carry permits. Now, I'm telling you right now, I hope this never happens to you. And I said that, all right, Obama and Hillary, they're insisting, Hillary especially, they're going to bring in refugees that every single intelligence official in this country is warning against. We have a five-year-old girl raped in Idaho. We have this case in Orlando. Their answer is not to say the words radical Islam. They're... Their argument is we can't even we've got to redact the words of the terrorist because it's too offensive to let people know the actual truth about what this guy stands for. So they redact it. Okay, and the net result of that, the net result of their failed policies, you know, now we're going to bring in 550 percent more. So does that mean that every rape, every murder, every crime by every refugee could have been prevented but for? Obama and Hillary insisting that we take these people in and insisting and fighting to prevent you law abiding people from being armed to protect yourselves. By the way, and I understand that many of you may choose not to be armed. I get that. There are friends of mine. I go. You want to go shooting? No, I don't like to shoot. Okay, well, I do. But you know what? If something happens and my friends with me, they're going to be if it's San Bernardino, I'm going to do everything I can do to save their life. I'm going to do everything. If I'm in the Pulse nightclub, I'm going to try and prevent as much pain for all those families that lost loved ones. If I'm in San Bernardino, 
I'm going to try and take matters into my own hands and stop terrorists. As soon as they start reloading, I'm hiding. I'm coming out. I'm putting my laser on my Glock 40 right on their forehead. Probably I'd go for upper body mass. For those of you in law enforcement out there, don't worry. I am extremely, extraordinarily well-trained. I do have a laser because my sight is not quite as good as it used to be. But I can still shoot, you know, a uh, pretty well, pretty effectively. You know, attention to detail is critical when you own your own business. That's why you need to use LegalZoom.com. Now, they take care of all the legal details so you can focus on growing your business. Now, you already know that LegalZoom is a great way to start your business, and they've helped over 1 million people get up and started the right way. But there's more to running your business than getting started. Supplier and customer contracts come with the territory. And if you need to hire help, well, every state has its own employment laws. So don't spend your valuable time researching laws and reading small print. Let the experts at LegalZoom.com handle this. Now, they have a network of independent attorneys licensed in 48 states who know your local laws and regulations. They'll provide the best legal answers for your day-to-day questions. And the best part is you don't pay by the hour since LegalZoom is not a law firm. Instead, you pay a low monthly fee. You know exactly what you're getting up front. Go to LegalZoom.com today and spend your time growing your business instead of worrying about the legal details. Just use Hannity One when you check out and save even more. LegalZoom.com. All right, so we have some Supreme Court decisions I want to go over. Also, Brexit, the British exiting the European Union that uh, I know that maybe a lot of you are saying that's probably not at the top of your list of priorities of things to pay attention to, but it might be in ways that you don't imagine. I think Britain struggling like the rest of Europe with the Islamization and migration issues that they're facing let me actually, I have some thoughts on this, by the way. So anyway, Brexit is what it's known as and British exit from the European Union. And I, my belief is they're going to leave. And if they do, I mean, the polls are neck and neck. It would be a huge resurgence in British nationalism, almost what Donald Trump is trying to establish here in the U.S. And I think it would be a good thing. Now, the argument that if Britain leaves the EU, it will be shut out from trade and other economies. It's just silly, but it has the fifth largest economy in the world, and Britain's standalone economy is very strong, and they're going to do just fine, and there's like no other nations that will shut them out if they leave the EU. Now, if Britain does leave, I suspect, as some have predicted, that the markets could be spooked for the short term, but probably in the long term it will be better and stronger. And I don't think most people have any idea of the insane and crazy regulations that these bureaucrats in Brussels, you know, they make Obama look like Milton Friedman for crying out loud. I mean, it's suffocating, it's oppressive, and it's just been overwhelming in terms of anti-growth for the economy of, of all of the continent of Europe. But anyway, so I think Britain will do much better standing on their own. But beyond that, this is really rooted in what we're discussing. And that's immigration. I mean, it's real. It's much worse than the U.S. And that is in part because of Britain's membership into the EU. For example, let's say you're a Romanian. You get an EU passport. You get to go to Britain. And then you get access to everything in Britain. That means schools, their health care system, which is already overwhelmed, the National Institute of Health, 
And by the way, they do have death panels in Great Britain. Oh, let's see. You're 76 years old. You have exceeded the life expectancy. Oh, I'm sorry you need a new hip. We can't afford to give it to you. Good luck. Here's a screw. Here's a screwdriver. Take care of it yourself. Uh, And that's how their system works. Anyway, unemployment and everything else also overwhelmed, just like the rest of the world economy. And, you know, it should be the U.S. leading us out of all of this, and we're not. But so it's an enormous financial burden placed on Britain, and it's pulling it down. And it also impacts security. And, you know, it's uh, it's scare tactics that are being used again by those that want this world government that, you know, to pretend that Britain leaving the EU is going to jeopardize security relationships that they have. Um, no, that's not exactly what's going to happen in any way, shape, matter or form. But again, that's, you know, typical of the left everywhere around the world. They're all pretty much the same. And that is they lie and they scare. And that's what Hillary's trying to do, scare everybody about Donald Trump. But uh, that, you know, Britain leaving the EU will jeopardize security relationships with nations like France and Germany. No, it won't. The U.S. has great relationships with those countries and we're not involved in the European Union. But I hope the EU, if if not collapses, I hope that they lose significant influence. I mean, I'm not going to have any influence or else I would have discussed this. I'm just interested in how this comes out. But I don't think it's good for Europe or America or the world order. And I think a weak Europe is bad for all of us. That's why the Islamization of France and Belgium and even Sweden and other countries in between and Germany taking in all these migrants is bad. You know, that's why you have 88 separate Sharia courts just in Great Britain. That's why you have no-go zones in France. And if Europe is weak and the EU is making European nations weaker... And not stronger, that's bad for the world. And by the way, that's, you know, these countries, Britain, Germany, France, just to name three, are are more powerful on their own. And why should uh, the better run nations be financially responsible for those that are poorly run? Why should the Brits and Germans be obligated to bail out Greece or Spain if their governments overspend and mismanage their money? Because you've had huge amounts of money being taken out of Britain in fees and regulations to take care of these poorly run nations, which take away the incentive for them to improve because they keep getting bailed out. And weak countries keep dragging down the stronger ones where it should be that the stronger ones with their success, you know, it's a rising tide lifting all boats. Anyway, it threatens British sovereignty and I think is part of a larger effort by the left to weaken national sovereignty They want the integration of these huge transnational organizations. And I think in the end, that's all part of the socialist dream. You know, the lyrics John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. He sounds a lot like Loretta Lynch. We just got to love. If we just love our way out of radical Islamism, it's nonsense. It's detached from truth. It's detached from reality, and now, and, and it's detached from how we as human beings live our lives and how we develop our loyalties. We pledge allegiance to nations, not transnational entities, you know, to the United States, not the United Nations, although there are some that would love that to happen, and the British should pledge loyalty. By the way, I, there will be a press at some point for the U.S. to go into 
you know, we should bail out all of Africa, all of Asia, all of Europe. You know, we should bail out the entire world, and then we'd be poor, too, like everybody else. We'll all drag down with each other. There was a significant movement at the courts today, the Supreme Court, a 4-4 tie blocking the president's illegal, unconstitutional executive amnesty in which he sought to shield millions of uh, people living in this country illegally from deportation. His answer was, well, the only difference is between them and us is that they just don't have the right papers. No, the difference is they didn't obey the law. They're here. They're undocumented. They're illegal. They violated the law. And this president wanted to violate the Constitution, the precepts, the concepts of separation of powers and co-equal branches of government. And he didn't like the laws as they were written and signed into law by previous presidents. So he decided through executive fiat, he would just rewrite it on his own. Anyway, as a result of the decision, as many as five million undocumented immigrants will not be shielded from deportation or allowed to legally work in the U.S. So the 4-4 deadlock left in place an appeals court ruling blocking the ban. And what's important to note here is that the issue has less to do with the policy merits of Obama's decision than the fact that it was simply and transparently unconstitutional. And Obama himself had said so many times that he didn't have the authority to do that. But he did it anyway. No respect for the law, no respect for the Constitution he's sworn to uphold. So in this case, the federal appeals court, this was in New Orleans, said the administration lacked the constitutional authority to shield these illegal immigrants from deportation and make them eligible to work uh, with work permits without approval from Congress. Now, Texas, by the way, give them credit. They led 26 Republican-dominated states in challenging the program that Obama announced in November of 2014. By the way, the only reason this even went to the courts is because Republicans were too timid and weak to use the power of the purse, as they promised in the election in 2014, to stop Obama's illegal, unconstitutional executive amnesty. So a nine-justice court agreed to hear the case in January. By the time the arguments took place in late April... Antonin Scalia had tragically died, and that left eight justices to decide the case, and the court presumably split along liberal conservative lines, predictably, I should say, and the court did not say how each justice voted, but um, I think it's pretty certain. But anyway, had Scalia been alive, certainly would have voted with his fellow conservatives, and they would have formed a majority in favor of the states. And that would have been significant, both because this is an issue Obama hoped would become one of his central legacies, And now it will not. The effort is effectively dead. And this also marks yet another time Obama has been slapped down by the Supreme Court for acting unconstitutionally. Almost exactly two summers ago, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that Obama exceeded his constitutional authority in making high-level government appointments. Remember the recess appointments? That was back in 2012 when he declared that the Senate to be in recess, even though they weren't in recess, and unable to act on his nomination to the National Labor Relations Board. So what we're seeing unfold is a system of government, the founders design, working as it's supposed to. The great insight of our Federalist founders, people like James Madison, was uh, the importance of separation of powers, checks and balances, one branch of government checking the power of another. In this case, the Supreme Court, not for the first time, restrained and pulled back 
the unconstitutional acts of an American president who himself acknowledged what he was doing was illegal and unconstitutional. So you got a president that, in spite of what his own teachings tell him, repeatedly pushes the limits of power, and the Supreme Court slaps him right down on his knuckles saying, nope, no, you don't. Sorry. And today was a good day in that sense, and it's a good time as any to give thanks for the wisdom, the insight, the foresight of our framers and our founders who understood that people like Obama would rise and need to be restrained. By the way, there's another uh, development today. The third police officer in Baltimore, this time it's Officer Caesar Goodson. This is the guy that if they were going to find a guilty verdict, probably would have been it. He was driving the police van in which Freddie Gray incurred the fatal neck injury last April. Well, now he was found not guilty of second-degree depraved heart murder for uh, by the Baltimore uh, City Circuit Judge Barry Williams. Here's a guy, 46 years old, found not guilty on charges of manslaughter, assault, misconduct in office, and reckless endangerment. He waived his right to trial by jury. His bench trial began June 9th. Final arguments were heard Monday. And Gray, a 25-year-old Baltimore resident, remember he ran from the police at 8 in the morning, known as a drug dealer by the police officers, died of those injuries. Anyway, and then we saw what unfolded in Baltimore at the time. Anyway, we, they, they ended up shackling this guy, handcuffing this guy. They didn't have a seatbelt. That's not the cop's fault that the paddy wagon doesn't have a seatbelt. Anyway, the judge said that the evidence simply was not there. There was no way that Officer Goodson would have known that Freddie Gray was injured until the final stop at the Western District, and that's when a medic was called. The judge chided the state for using the term rough ride, saying it's highly charged, a highly charged term, and they failed to define it. Total slapdown. The prosecution's theory of this case did not fit the facts that they had presented to the judge, and he was troubled by this, according to WJZ's Helgren, reporter. I find it hard to believe that he would convict any of the officers in any of the four remaining trials to come. So why are you going to wait, waste the people's money? But once again, just like in the Michael Brown case with Dar- Darren Wilson and just like the Trayvon Martin case and every other case, there's this rush to judgment. They create the expectation in the minds of community members that there's going to be a certain verdict and result. And it never ends up working out that way. The president weighs in on Michael Brown and Darren Wilson. He didn't know that there were all these eyewitnesses that actually saw Michael Brown trying to struggle and grab Darren Wilson's gun. Or all of the black eyewitnesses that testified that Michael Brown kept charging right after Officer Wilson, even though he told him to stop. Or in the case of Trayvon Martin, somebody who would look like his son, in that case, he didn't predict that there'd be an eyewitness that saw Trayvon grounding and pounding his head, George Zimmerman's head, into the cement. It's another example, prosecutorial overreach, and it was obvious from the day it was brought, and I told you from day one this was the likely outcome. So you see an overly aggressive, restless prosecutors trying to placate and politicize a case without evidence, overcharging, 
looking stupid in the end. The justice system in this particular case and the person of Judge Williams stepped in to prevent an injustice from occurring. But you know what the net result of this is? Cops don't want to do their job anymore. The Ferguson effect, it's called. The Baltimore effect, it's called. They don't want to do their job. You know why? Because they don't feel like risking their lives with a jury or a judge and the rest of their lives in jail because they're being put up in a political trial, which is what this was. You know, sorry to say it, Blue Lives Matter. By the way, all the rush to judgment, don't cops who fight for the presumption of innocence until proven guilty? How come we don't give them that right? How come we don't stand up for their right to be presumed innocent? Anyway, uh, where do you see this thing tonight? We're going to show you about how crazy and insane the Democrats were. The whole episode is pathetic, melodrama, Democratic Party that has now been radicalized. Hillary Clinton gave China millions of jobs and our best jobs and effectively let China completely rebuild itself. In return, Hillary Clinton got rich. The book Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer documents how Bill and Hillary used the State Department to enrich their family and America's and at America's expense. She gets rich making you poor. Here is a quote from the book. At the center of U.S. policy toward China was Hillary Clinton. At this critical time for U.S.-China relations, Bill Clinton gave her a number of speeches that were underwritten by the Chinese government and its supporters. These funds were paid to the Clinton's bank account directly while Hillary was negotiating with China on behalf of the United States. Tell me, folks, does that work? She sold out our workers and our country for Beijing. Hillary Clinton has also been the biggest promoter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will ship millions more of our jobs overseas and give up congressional power to an international foreign commission. Now, because I have pointed out why it would be such a disastrous deal, she's pretending that she's against it. She's given and deleted, as you know, and most people have heard about this. Have we ever heard about her deleting anything? No, I don't think so. (laughs) She deleted the entire record from her book. And deletion is something she really does know something about because she's deleted at least 30,000 emails, which, by the way, should be able to be found. All right, that was Donald Trump, hour two, Sean Hannity show. That was his big speech yesterday, a big takedown of Hillary Clinton. And he mentioned our friend Peter Schweitzer, author of the New York Times bestselling book called Clinton Cash, the untold story of how and why foreign governments and businesses help make Bill and Hillary rich. And he joins us right now. Sir, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's great to be on with you, Sean. Thanks for having me. You know, you think about the things, world-class liar, the most corrupt person ever to seek the presidency, uh, perfecting the politics of personal profit and even theft. When she ran the State Department, she ran it like her own personal hedge fund, doing favors for oppressive regimes and many others. And, you know, are we really talking over a thousand foreign donations going to the Clintons over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a massive, massive, unprecedented circumstance in American political history where you have America's chief diplomat, the Secretary of State 
Hillary Clinton, and at the time she is making critical decisions, there is a flood of money. I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars flowing to the Clinton Foundation or ending up in the Clinton's pockets from foreign entities. Now, now think about that, Sean. I mean, we're used to, okay, Wall Street, oil companies, labor unions trying to influence our politicians. Foreign entities can't do that because they can't contribute to campaigns. They can't give monies to super PACs. It's against the law. The Clintons established this mechanism around it. So the, the problem today is not Wall Street or, or oil companies in Texas. The problem is foreign oligarchs in Nigeria and Russia are giving sometimes more than $100 million to the Clintons while she's making decisions that affect their country. Well, explain. I, I don't think most people know exactly what you're talking about. It's been a while. You've been way ahead of the curve. When, yeah. you, when your book first came out, I know now it's out in DVD and video form, and I, I'll tell people later how they can get it. But I think the most important thing that we've got to understand here, we, you know, for example, she's at the State Department, $55 million. Uh, she gives to a for-profit university, Laureate University, while her husband simultaneously is the chancellor getting paid $16.5 million. Now, in the real world, that's a quid pro quo. That's illegal. You go to jail. But, yeah, but it's a but, massive conflict of interest. Massive. All right. So the Clintons, in the, just in a two-year period, 2013 and 2015, between them, make close to $55 million dollars in speeches but where are the speeches we're talking about it's wall street it's big banks insurance companies lobbyists ceos and foreign governments how much money have they made from foreign governments it's 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 hard to estimate and it's hard to know but but you're looking at tens of millions of dollars and here's what people have to uh, recognize and common sense provides the guide here bill clinton leaves the white house in 2001 and his speaking fees are pretty high and they start to go down over time right because he's no longer as relevant he's been out of office five or six seven years when his wife becomes secretary of state in late two thousand eight his speaking fees from foreign entities triple overnight so people that before she was secretary of state were going to pay him maybe hundred and fifty thousand dollars a speech are now saying we want to give you five hundred thousand dollars for a single speech you know, did he become three times more eloquent? Uh, is is he sometimes three times? Well, didn't he get no. seven? Didn't he get seven hundred and fifty grand from China at some point? He got seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from a foreign company, Ericsson, that was in trouble with the State Department. We know that from State Department cables because they were selling telecom equipment to Iran. He gets his single biggest payday ever, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in a single speech from Ericsson. Literally seven days later, Sean, the State department issues and, and says we're not going to apply technology restrictions to Ericsson. So, the, so, so when Donald Trump said yesterday that Hillary Clinton is perfected, the politics of personal profit and and she ran a State Department like her own personal hedge fund doing favors for oppressive regimes. Well, in this case, it's China. In this case, it's them doing business with Iran at a time when we have sanctions on Iran. And it's her husband getting seven hundred and fifty grand and them overlooking what is a, a violation of, of what we had set out in terms of sanctions, correct? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you see this pattern over and over and over again, whether it's human rights policy in Africa, whether it's our policy in Latin America, you see the same pattern. It's impossible for there to be this many coincidences. So when I talk about money that 
was given by the Clint, given to the Clinton Foundation, to the Clinton Library, from oppressive regimes that oppress women, gays, lesbians, uh, Christians, and Jews, and up to twenty-five million of the Clinton Foundation from the Saudis, ten million to the uh, Clinton uh, uh, facility, the library in Little Rock, uh, and they treat women, minorities, etc., horribly. And the money from Kuwait, and and the money from the UAE, and the money from Brunei, and the money from Qatar, and the money from Oman. Again, oppressive regimes towards women, gays, lesbians, Christians, and Jews. She never criticizes them. They all take the money. And wouldn't it be really foolish to believe that they're not expecting something in return for those millions of dollars? What did they get in return? You're exactly right, Sean. You know, it's human nature. If if somebody comes up and says, I'm going to give you a $25 million check for something that you believe in, uh, the Clintons would say, oh, well, that's not going to affect our behavior. Of course it's going to affect your behavior, and it's in the actions that they took or they didn't take. So, you know, Hillary Clinton was certainly not a critic of, of Saudi Arabia and these other regimes in, in terms of their treatment of women or, or uh, uh, gays or, or other groups. She, she simply was not. And in terms of the policy positions that she took, they were highly favorable to those regimes. Well, let me so, tell you two things off the top of my head that I think that, that she paid them back. Number one, we're still dependent on foreign oil. Meanwhile, we have more natural gas than the entire world combined. We are the Saudi Arabia. We're the Middle East of natural gas. We have the ability to be energy independent. New technologies and horizontal drilling would allow us to be energy independent in three years. Add to that coal mining, add to that nuclear technology, all the things she's against. So one thing they're benefiting from is is her being against America being energy independent. A second thing is they certainly seem to have bought her silence. I've done an extensive, exhaustive search, I don't see Hillary Clinton criticizing the mistreatment of gays, lesbians, women, Christians, and Jews in these countries that practice Sharia. So did they buy her silence here, too? Well, you know, it certainly seems like it, because you'd expect her to be outspoken on those issues. She's been outspoken on those issues in, in other instances, and, and I think rightfully so, but not when it comes to these specific regimes. And, you know, you have to wonder what is the connection between the two? And, and the problem that the Clinton defenders have is they want us to suspend disbelief. They want us to say that these regimes are shoveling this money at the Clintons completely out of a sense of beneficent love. They just love the Clintons. They don't care what they get or do in return. That's not the way that these regimes operate. It's not the way that oligarchs in Nigeria or Russia operate. So they are sending large sums of money to the Clintons. They want things in return. And the evidence is pretty clear that that Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State took numerous favorable policies for all of these individuals that were sending her money. Why are they so fascinated with money and enrichment of themselves? I mean, you know, at some point there's only so much money that anybody can spend in five lifetimes, for crying out loud. But <laughs> but it seems uh, on their side, maybe it's because they didn't grow up with money or something, but, you know, this is very obviously very, very important to them. But they keep getting money. They keep by. They certainly influences being bought. If you look at all of the money that she was being paid on average, sometimes more, a very rarely less, $225,000 a speech. She required nothing less than a G450, which is a 19-seat jet by Gulfstream, uh, for her travel to these 
events. And these, by the way, these events, we're talking about you fly from A to B, you go in, you, you do maybe 100 clicks of a camera. Not everyone gets a picture. She, you have to be a really high donor to get a picture. Then after the clicks, she gives a 45-minute speech or a 30-minute speech, 15-minute Q&A, and she walks out the door, gets on the Gulfstream. Now, on top of that, she needs the presidential suite, and then she also needs additional airfare, first-class airfare for her staff and people to get there early. So we're talking about a $300,000 proposition just for her to give one-hour speech. And yeah. and she's made, it, for example, between 2013 and 15, between the two of them, what, did they make close to 55000 uh, $55, $55 million. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the sums are astronomical. And again, when you look at who is paying them and when they're paying them, I mean, you know, I point this out in the book, and Sean, we've talked about it, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline, Hillary Clinton becomes Secretary of State, and Bill Clinton, for the first time ever, gets gets a contract to, to give $2 million worth of speeches in Canada for this investment firm. They had never expressed an interest in him speaking before. Suddenly, they want him to give 10 speeches for $2 million. It's the largest shareholder in the Keystone XL pipeline. After he gives the last speech, three months later, Hillary Clinton in 2011 gives the green light and does the economic and environmental impact of Secretary of State saying, I have no reason to, to stop this project from going forward. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very clear. It's repeated again and again. And, you know, the psychology of what motivates them, you know, who knows? The, the argument, though, that, that Clinton friends have made over the years that they're not motivated by money is laughable. They would not be doing what they're doing and well, let me ask you as aggressively as they are. As you mentioned the speech, I actually, for a minute, by accident, had CNN on yesterday. Right after the speech, there's David Gergen, <laughs> a liberal leftist hack for Hillary, and, and he basically accused Trump of slander. And you, oh, that book has been largely debunked. And I'm thinking, no, it hasn't. Yeah, It never was debunked in any capacity, although George Stephanopoulos tried to do a hit piece on you. Uh, it shows how in the pocket he still is for the Clintons. But uh, I don't know that anybody debunked the truth of your book and the exhaustive research and footnotes that you put in that book. No, Sean, I mean, in fact, look, and, and here I have to give uh, some positive comments to, to certain media outlets. Um, the New York Times did a 4,000-word front-page piece on the uranium deal confirmed what we found their investigative team washington post did a front page piece confirming our stuff on haiti about how hillary's brother got a gold mine and other problems with haiti reconstruction the wall street journal news division fox news of course even abc news the investigative unit confirmed a large portion of the findings the real outliers here in the coverage of this book frankly have been nbc and cnn they have had zero, zero curiosity of even asking people questions about this. Think about this, Sean. New York Times does a 4,000-word front-page investigative piece about the Clintons getting $145 million from shareholders involved in this Russian uranium deal. CNN has Hillary Clinton on repeatedly. They didn't ask her one question about this. Any other politician in America that had been subject to a 4,000-word front-page New York Times investigation, CNN would ask them repeated questions about it. CNN has zero curiosity on these subjects. They're they're too busy taking time out of Trump's speech to see if he breathes in deeply. That's the the extent of their stupid coverage. Uh, You know, the sad thing, too, is, I mean, all these Wall Street corporations, you can look
look at Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, you know, all these big firms on Wall Street, big banks, big insurance companies. Um, clearly, you know, there was a report in the Politico the other day that, oh, Wall Street fat cats warning Hillary, don't choose loony Liz Warren for VP. Why won't she release the transcripts? What did she say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's a great point. And look, this, this is the thing. If, if you give a, a uh, you know, a politician like Hillary Clinton $100,000 in cash, uh, that could be construed as a bribe. But if you pay her $225,000 as a quote-unquote speaking fee and she comes and gives a speech and you're able to talk to her and, and yeah. communicate to her what you want and, and what you would like. It's buying um, access. Exactly. It's That's exactly yeah. right. All right, got to run. But how can that. people get your DVD real quick? Uh, it's it's uh, look at uh, ClintonCashMovie.com and uh, the book. Right. It's also available as well. Thank you so much. He's out there playing with a camera, taking pictures, and I thought, does that kid never see a horse machine or something before? I'll go see what he's taking pictures for. And so when I went out there, there was trouble. And the little girl and the boys were, the boys were being mean to my little girl. Now, when and you opened up the door of the laundry room, what did you see? The boys with no clothes on and the little girl. Huh? Did you, were they touching the little girl? Yeah, I guess so. They were doing enough that nobody wanted to be around her because they even peed on her. Now, I know that the LGBTQB community in particular has been shaken by this attack. It is indeed a cruel irony that a community that is defined almost exclusively by whom they love is so often a target of hate. And let me say to our LGBT friends and family, particularly to anyone who might view this tragedy as an indication that their identities, that their essential selves might somehow be better left unexpressed or in the shadows, this Department of Justice and your country stands with you in the light. We stand with you to say that the good in this world far outweighs the evil that our common humanity transcends our differences, and that our most effective response to terror and to hatred is compassion, to unity, and its love. All right, that was Loretta Lynch. Our most effective response to terror and to hatred is love. It's compassion. You know, the idea that compassion and love will defeat radical Islamic terrorists that are sliding, uh, slicing people's throats and terrorizing all of us and bombing and killing innocent men, women, and children and going into nightclubs and shooting them up, you know, is beyond anything I have ever heard in terms of its ignorance. And I said this yesterday. Just, just imagine Winston Churchill, blood, toil, sweat, and tears. We'll beat them here. We'll beat them in the hills. We'll beat them in the land, on sea, and in the air. He was a hero. Or FDR's response to the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. You know, I just cannot believe the mindset, the same mindset that redacted this guy saying Allah, and they put in the word God as the interpretation, which is a lie, or the same mindset, I, I am a committed soldier of ISIS, and they redact ISIS because they don't want to offend uh, quote, the Muslim community. It's not the Muslim. We're talking about radical Islamists that want to kill us. Now, the tape you heard before that was an eyewitness. Now, there is a case where a five-year-old girl was literally raped by migrant boys, apparently Muslim, in America, and the media's response, their first instinct is to dismiss the story and label local residents racist and bigots and Islamophobes 
You know, it's sort of like the, the don't ask, don't tell doctrine on the refugee file is becoming just a little too routine. Five-year-old girl sexually assaulted in a laundry room by two refugee boys as a third boy looks on and film the attack. His 89-year-old neighbor saw suspicious activity, approached the area, and was the one-eye witness that described what actually happened there. And that's what you just heard. You know, you can add to this the stupidity of the, the comments of John Kerry just the other day. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that there is a threat. Zero evidence refugees making it through the U.S. screening process pose a greater risk than other groups. Well, that's not what the CIA director said, the FBI director said, the assistant FBI director, former special envoy to defeat ISIS said, the House Homeland Security uh, Committee chair said, or anybody else. There is a great threat. We saw it in Belgium. We saw it in Brussels. We saw it in Paris. So what's it going to take? Unbelievable. Joining us now, Rich Higgins, Vice President, Intelligence, National Security Programs, former manager with the Department of Defense, combating terrorism, technical support, office and irregular warfare support program. And Pam Geller is the president of the American Freedom Defense Initiative and editor and publisher of Atlas Shrugs. And uh, welcome both of you back to the program. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Sean. You know, there's one other thing that I didn't mention here. Apparently, some of the recovered phones from the nightclub in Orlando Pulse have recordings of the jihadi uh, talking to a co-conspirator regarding tactics. We do know during the attack that he stopped to see if he was trending on social media. We do know during the attack that he contacted his wife, who we don't know where she is right now. Um, is there a co-conspirator here? I saw this on your website, Pam. Well, I mean, this is the latest bombshell coming out of the Orlando Jihad attack. And it's consistent with the obfuscation, the scrubbing, and the whitewashing of this worst terrorist attack since 9-11. You know, and it's coming from the victims. You know, they said they recorded it on their phones. So you have a massive intel failure. You have, as you know, I think it was a relative of yours, a gun shop owner who had called the FBI uh, when he had tried to purchase weapons at his shop. They never even came down to the store. You have Disney, you have Disney who called the FBI saying that he and his wife had been casing Disney. He'd been cheering 9-11. Uh, in school. He has a history, not one but two FBI investigations, one that was quashed when he said that the co-workers that he had threatened and said he was a member of an Islamic Jihad group, uh, he said they were quote-Islamophobic, and they killed that investigation. This is a massive intel failure. I don't know why the Obama administration wants Americans to die. There were more red flags here than a China National Day parade. Well, I keep saying this whole thing now. Uh, I, Rich, I had you on with Phil Haney, and both both of you are, are whistleblowers. Now, yours was a little bit different. He was part of the Department of Homeland Security formation, and when Obama became president, both of you talked about a scrubbing of the names that you had acquired over a long period of time of Muslims associated with radicalism, and those names were then scrubbed. But when you worked in irregular warfare, 
support programs. Aren't we really talking about special ops? Aren't we talking about covert operations, plausible deniability? Exactly, Sean. And I think what what we saw in there was not just Phil's scrubbing of names, but the systematic removal of anything pertaining to Islam at at the strategic intelligence, at the policy levels where we couldn't even say Islam. We couldn't talk about Muslim. We couldn't say... Wait, wait, hang on a sec. Wait, wait. You could not say radical Islam at the state, at the Department of Defense? At at levels in the Pentagon where where the political sphere meets the operational sphere, anywhere that touched off limits. So what you'll see is national military strategies, national security strategies that use this obfuscating term, violent extremism, which if you really ask what that is, it collapses into nothing. And I think I would probably, as a former soldier, be defined as a violent extremist. I, I, and you, meanwhile, we have the names of terrorists, or known terrorists, known uh, people known sympathizers of terrorism in your database, and you were told and forced to erase their names. That that was Phil's specific story, and, and it's, it's it's well. Tell us your specific. Tell us your specific story. I don't want to put words in your mouth. My, my specific story is as someone who wanted to work on this issue, you're charged with developing capabilities for combating terrorism. We wanted to build a robust understanding of how Islam at the doctrinal level functions understanding that jihad is part of Islam. And the solutions to stopping the jihad are also inside Islam, but we were prohibited from even looking in there. Anyone who did the diligence to understand this at, at, a, at, a, you know, at, a, at a level that you could actually interpret the deliberate decision-making process of our enemy was quashed by the system, hunted down and pushed out of the system actively. So while we play lip service to understanding the threat doctrine, we don't actually understand it. Our generals are saying we don't have a strategy. We're wasting trillions of dollars. And, and you know, my, my comment is to Attorney General Lynch, how about some compassion for your fellow Americans? You know, how about putting Americans first? You know, this is where, where Donald Trump is right. Well, now, American people are sick of this. So you're, you're describing a Department of Defense that is so politically correct we can't identify an enemy. You're, you're, you're talking about major failings on just a, a surface level, and this is supposed, supposed to be covert ops um, that can't even be put into place because of political correctness. And then Phil Haney's describing a scrubbing of names that have been developed by agents out in the field for years and years. And it just, you know, why are we not surprised that events like what happened in Orlando, we don't have more of it. Now, Pam, you had written a column about how the Orlando terrorist friend had contacted the FBI directly about this guy ahead right. of time. And, and, and they never followed up. Look, this is ongoing. Uh, there are very bad people out there, and uh, we know, I, I know from readers that have been contacting the FBI, they do not follow up. This is not their own initiative. This is coming from a, on high. The idea that the Attorney General would say love and compassion will defeat jihad is tantamount to saying we must surrender. And it's not that just these egregious, gruesome, ghastly attacks. The story of that little girl, the five-year-old girl, who, by the way, was special need in Idaho. Idaho should be the clarion call. Idaho should be the clarion call of every suburban mom out there. Idaho should be Donald Trump's clarion call on immigration. Five-year-old special needs girl who was smaller for her age, so she was smaller than five, okay, who was stripped naked, who was urinated on, and in her mouth, 
mouth and raped. And the media, when I first reported the story, one of, one of two or three um, um, websites that reported it, we came under enormous criticism, uh, you know, visceral attacks by the left that the story didn't happen. And then when, it, of course, it did happen because you heard the eyewitness, um, they said we got the story wrong because we had said, and this I had gotten from someone who was there, uh, Syrian refugees, but they were from Iraq and Sudan. That's like saying we got their sock color wrong. It's not an issue of whether they were from Syria or Iraq or Sudan or Afghanistan. They're from jihad nations, and this is exactly the kind of immigration that Donald Trump wants to halt and that we must halt. I mean, our special needs children Where, where, where did safe? they come from, these people? Iraq and Sudan. Now, you know Sudan, northern Sudan is... Oh, well, wait a, a minute, a but John Kerry, I just read you what he had said. I mean, John Kerry said there's no evidence, zero evidence, refugees pose greater risk than other groups. Because they're imposing their fantasist narrative on the American people. And they know that the media is going to run it verbatim without questioning. And they do, which is why so many, at least half of the American people, are misinformed. But this story, I think, is a game changer. If our special needs children are not safe, no one is safe. Who we, I mean, are we who going to sacrifice Europe? Who in the media is focusing on this five-year-old, this five-year-old girl in a rape case? I'll be honest, I search the news exhaustively every day, and I didn't see it on my own. My producer, Linda, pointed it out to me. I'm like, how did I miss this? Why Why wasn't this posted everywhere? It wasn't. I'll tell you who posted it. Salon posted with this headline, no, Syrian refugees didn't rape a child in Idaho. Right-wing urban blog, blah, blah, blah. Jezebel posted, no, Syrian refugees didn't rape a child in Idaho. The Inquisitor, uh, Syrian refugees didn't gang rape a five-year-old. Raw story, Idaho prosecute, anti-Muslim bigot, made-up shocking gang rape. That that's the kind of media that people are getting. And that's why what we do and what you do, Sean, is so crucial, what we do on Facebook. Look, in the wake of the Orlando Jihad, Facebook took down my page and took down Stop Islamization of America. Fifty, I have over 50,000 members, and my own page has 350,000 followers. I mean, there is, a, there is a concerted effort by the leftist Islamic machine to shut down any discussion in accordance with... Well, the- look, at, look at what the Attorney General did this week. You know, they, they released the trans- Transcript. I pledge allegiance to omitted. I pledge allegiance to omitted. May God, and I guarantee you it wasn't God, that it was Allah, Absolutely. protect him on behalf of omitted. And then she says, our most effective response to terror and hatred is compassion and it's love. Is surrender. Look, the very first words he uttered on his first 911 call was the Bismillah, was uh, Allah, the merciful, the beneficent, the same Bismillah that they made over Daniel Pearl when they beheaded him when they made over James Foley, when they behead every infidel, every non-Muslim, every heretic, every apostate, every homosexual. All right, let me, let me give the last word uh, to our good friend Rich. Uh, Rich, it's pretty scary. I mean, this is a state of denial. It's sort of like the 9-11 Commission report. They're at war with us. We're not at war with them. And a new report will be written after thousands are killed again. Sean, we've become dislocated from reality. One last anecdote for you. Just in the past couple of weeks, we saw as Twitter moved to shut down the United States intelligence community's access to their account. Uh, there was a program run called Dana Miner. We also look back and we'll see that Prince Walid bin Talal, the black prince of Saudi Arabia, probably the most prominent fiscal jihadi in the world, the guy who offered $10 million to Giuliani. He's now a, a, a large, large majority owner inside Twitter Corporation. And we see where these decisions lead. The amount of influence that these guys have inside the United States government, inside the deliberate decision-making process of our national security apparatus, 
that has compromised our national security apparatus. You're basically saying we're screwed. We're in deep trouble, Sean. I'm not going to lie to you. All right. I wish I had better news. I don't. More than 730,000 lives have been changed as a result. These are students, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're lawyers. They're Americans in every way but on paper. And fortunately, today's decision does not affect this policy. It does not affect the existing dreamers. Two years ago, we announced a similar expanded approach for others who are also low priorities for enforcement. We said that if you've been in America for more than five years with children who are American citizens or legal residents, then you too can come forward, get right with the law, and work in this country temporarily without fear of deportation. Both were the kinds of actions taken by Republican and Democratic presidents over the past half century. Neither granted anybody a free pass. All they did was focus our enforcement resources, which are necessarily limited, on the highest priorities. Convicted criminals, recent border crossers, and threats to our national security. This is an election year, and during election years, politicians tend to use the immigration issue to scare people with words like amnesty in hopes that it will whip up votes. Uh, keep in mind that millions of us, myself included, go back generations in this country with ancestors who put in the painstaking effort to become citizens. And we don't like the notion that anyone might get a free pass to American citizenship. But here's the thing. Millions of people who have come forward and worked to get right with the law under this policy, they've been living here for years, too, in some cases even decades. So leaving the broken system the way it is, that, that's not a solution. In fact, that's the real amnesty, pretending we can deport 11 million people or build a wall without spending tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money uh, is abetting uh, what is really just factually incorrect. It's, it's not going to work. It's not good for this country. It's a fantasy that offers nothing to help the middle class and demeans our tradition of being both a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. All right, that's the president responding today to the Supreme Court, a 4-4 split on the challenge to the president's immigration executive action, which we've all said from the beginning is illegal and unconstitutional because he's bypassing laws that were passed by previous Congresses and through executive fiat, just rewriting the law as he decides he wants to write it. Now, the decision is not a full opinion, but just a one sentence line that says the judgment is affirmed by an equally divided court. And what that means is the fate of the president's immigration programs hinge on the next election. In other words, this lawsuit started the U.S. versus Texas, and it had been brought by 26 uh, states led by Texas, objecting to the administration's 2014 executive actions that should have could have shielded millions of undocumented workers, or as the president say, says, they're American in every way but on paper. Uh, that would mean they're here illegally. Uh, on paper. Anyway, we've got that. We've got the Supreme Court upholding affirmative action in university admissions. Got a lot of other court rulings war that we'll get to as well. Also, we have uh, the third officer in the Freddie Gray case acquitted once again. How could they be so wrong after so many people had their hopes driven so high that they expected convictions for all of these police officers. All right, here to weigh in on all of this, Danielle McLaughlin, attorney, expert, and co-wrote the Federalist Society, How Conservatives Took the Law Back from Liberals. Jay Sekulow is the chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. Jay, let's talk first about how this 
4-4 tie ostensibly blocks Obama's executive action on immigration. Well, it does, it, it, at least for now. The decision of the court basically affirms the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit said that the president violated what is called the separation of powers, that he did not have the authority to change the law on his own, that that was an executive overreach. The president, you played the, the sound there where the president says there are Americans in every way but on paper, but that but on paper is really important because if you don't have legal papers to be in the United States of America, guess what? You're not here legally. So that that's one significant aspect. Number two, it does highlight that the next presidential election, because we know there's a vacancy. Look, Sean, if, if, if Justice Scalia uh, had not been deceased, we would have had a 5-4 merits win, and it would have ended the case, period. I, I still think I'd rather be 4-4 tied than the, on the other end losing, but uh, five justices would have made a difference. A fifth justice would have made a difference. So the death of Justice Scalia highlights what is at stake in the next presidential election, at least as it relates to the courts, and that's a big issue. What do you make about the other decisions of today? Well, the the case involving the admissions requirement, it, people are saying this was a big win for affirmative action, but they need to read the opinion because even in the majority opinion, there is clearly an indication that this kind of preferential treatment needs to be constantly reevaluated and probably brought to to an end sooner rather than later. So again, you know, splintered courts, here's what you're going to have. But um, I wasn't shocked with this one uh, in the nature of the, the case, but I think it even, even the majority opinion, there is some concern uh, where it ends up uh, ultimately on affirmative action. I think affirmative action has, has probably seen its day and, and it may be a case or two away because generally they've been gutted uh, pretty successfully um, over the last couple of years. So this breathed a little bit of life into it, but I don't think life so long. Let me say one other thing, Sean, on this immigration thing, though, which is big. The president kept threatening to use uh, his phone and his pen. And I think what even this 4-4 split did was show that his pen's out of ink and his phone ran out of battery because he's not going to be able to, between now and the end of his term, he can't do this again. Let me bring Danielle in here. Danielle, on these two big issues, uh, on the 4-4 tie and the affirmative action case being upheld and admissions, your thoughts? You know, I'm actually largely in agreement with Jay on his analysis. Uh, certainly, so first we go to the DAPA case, which is the immigration case. You know, the upholding of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals really did say that the administration didn't follow what it was required to do administratively. And part of that was a notice and comment period uh, when ordinary people were meant to be able to come and put their thoughts forth about what this executive Well, I actually, I actually read it a little differently. I mean, what, I think it's very clear that this was about, if you go to the earlier court decision, this was about separation of powers and co-equal branches of government and... And the president doesn't unilaterally have a constitutional right or a legal right to rewrite laws on his own. No, absolutely. I don't disagree. And actually, the sort of the second part of that was that the court had said that the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and the, act, the statutory basis for that you know, for that agency that overrides the president's power here. So, and I think Obama admitted it himself. He has reached the, the limits of his power. The court has basically yep. said that. So it's back to the drawing board and it's back to Congress to find a solution to immigration. Well, I think that's all true. What are your What are your thoughts on the affirmative action case? I, again, I agree with Jay. I think this was a very closely circumscribed case. I thought it was interesting that Justice Kennedy, as you well know, a swing voter, uh, sided with uh, affirmative action this time, whereas normally Normally, he has voted against it. Um, this ongoing obligation for the University of Texas to show by data that their race-conscious admissions process is actually doing what it is designed to do is very important and is required by this, uh, this opinion and by, for any other institution of higher learning. But I tend to agree with Jay. I think that this is a smaller victory than perhaps 
if, uh, advocates if, of you know, affirmative action would have liked. If, if discrimination is wrong, and I think we all agree with that, is, is another kind of discrimination as a remedy, is that equally wrong? Well, this is the eternal question, and John Roberts famously said the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And, Jay, I'd be interested in your thoughts, but, you know, the sort of the liberal view is that African-Americans, Hispanics, basically non-whites have had a long history of discrimination in this country and that we still are required to have some kind of consciousness in terms of righting those historic wrongs. You know, part of it is this kind of this enabling, I think, of the vestiges of Jim Crow. I mean, this is, but except it's a long time ago. And if you talk to a lot of academics, uh, African-American academics, they're saying that these young men and women that are coming out of high school or college or going into the professions that are minorities compete very well with their non-minority counterpart. So the the point is, I think what John Roberts, what Danielle said was right, John Roberts was right. You know, the way to end discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. So I think it needs to be more of an equal playing field now. I think that's where this should go. I think it was going in that direction. Danielle's also, I think, right. I mean, it was surprising in a sense that Justice Kennedy uh, went the way he did here, although this case had the opinion itself, the majority opinion has a lot of caveats. All right, let me go to another case that came down today. The Supreme Court placed new limits on state laws that make it a crime for motorists suspected of drunken driving or DUI to refuse alcohol tests. The justices ruled that police must obtain a search warrant before requiring drivers, excuse me, drivers to take blood and alcohol tests, yeah. uh, but not breath tests, which the court considers less intrusive. And this came in response to three cases in which drivers actually challenged the so-called implied consent laws in Minnesota and North Dakota as violating the constitutional ban on unreasonable search and seizure. What's your take on it? Uh, can I say one thing real quick on that, Sean? The, the, the Sotomayor Kagan opinions in that case said that they don't even think that a breath test they think for a breath test, you'd have to have a search warrant, a warrant to do the test. Well, the I think that's, is, by that's the, absurd. By the, by the time you get, <laughs> look, I actually came, this is a true story. One day, so we were doing Man on the Street in a nightclub when we did Hannity's America years ago in New York. Now, the nightclub doesn't get going until like 12 o'clock. I mean, right. these night owls live very different lives than I do, obviously. Anyway, so I waited for the place to get busy, and I actually did buy drinks for my, I did not have a single drop of alcohol. I knew I was driving home. I had driven myself there. Anyway, I walk out of the club at like one in the morning after we got the filming done. I get in my car, and I drove, I make a right turn. I follow on a green light. Now, at this particular location in New York, it's lit up like a summer day. There's so many people on the street. Cop says, get out of the car, and you got to blow into this. I'm like, I didn't have a single drink, I promise you. Not one drink. And he made me blow. It blows zero, zero. And then he goes, no, this can't be right. Blow again. Zero, zero. And, you know, I had to call my boss and say, well, there might be a picture of me in the paper tomorrow getting a breathalyzer test because the cop was being obnoxious. Right. And the only evidence that they would have had that I had any alcohol was I came out of a club at one in the morning. And I guess it's a fair assumption that somebody would have had a drink, but I didn't have one. Yeah. I I mean, this... This case was all about the the tension between your privacy rights and then, you know, the laws of the road that keep us all safe. And basically what the court came out and said was the impact of breath testing on your 
your privacy is slight, but the need for breath testing is high because of the you know enormous number of death and injury that results from uh, drunk driving. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, I think. Look, I mean, there's, there's the expectation of privacy is always the legal issue when you when you get to the the invasion of privacy or whether there's an ability to get a warrant or do you need a warrant? It's the old stop and frisk. Well, but the thing those. is, let's say somebody's close. Yeah. Let's say the average state law is is point oh eight in terms of the legal limit of alcohol you can have in yeah. your blood and your your breath and you know let's say you're 1.0 so you're above the legal limit by the time yep. they get a search warrant and you sober up and, and eat like right. a you know eat and absorb the alcohol in your system and drink right. a lot of water i mean and so go they the- can be manipulated and then that's why majority has to you know i think that the the breath test is is the easier case and yeah. that's been the law by the way for a long time the the Blood tests have always been deemed to be more intrusive, though. Any t- and, and by the way, not just in this context, any t- blood withdrawal, blood for medical purposes. You remember all those cases. Right, so because the government this has always has, been a different issue. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the government then has a blood sample of yours, um, and then the question is, what do they do with that? Actually, to your point, Sean, about this notion of warrantless searches, actually on Monday there was another case where the court ruled that if you have an outstanding warrant for basically anything um, and you are the victim of an unconstitutional search and seizure, if it was conducted in good faith, then the fruits of that search and seizure can actually be admitted against you because of the fact of that outstanding warrant. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Baltimore. And it looks like uh, the Baltimore prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, is now... Strike three. You know, strike three in her so-called quest for justice. We all witnessed in horror what happened in Baltimore. The thing that frustrates me is the continuous rush to judgment. We saw it in Ferguson. Uh, Even the president weighed in on that case. Mr. Constitutional Attorney himself without hearing from the eyewitnesses who corroborated Officer Darren Wilson's story that he was being charged at repeatedly and threatened. And this guy, you know, Michael Brown fought for his gun and he was not indicted in that case or jumping into the case. President jumped into the Trayvon Martin case and my son would look like Trayvon and he didn't uh, account for an eyewitness that actually identified Trayvon Martin on top of George Zimmerman grounding and pounding his head into cement, just like the Cambridge police. Well, this is the third time this prosecutor has tried to get a conviction and she's zero for three. And at some point, you got to say, okay, there was not a crime committed here. And I think at the end of the day, that's what the juries are saying. Right. And this is, I read the opinion today, this was a a judge who has acquitted, as you say, the other uh, defendants. This was the most serious number of crimes. This was nine charges against this police officer, including second degree depraved heart murder. But based on the officer's testimony, um, the judge determined that there was no criminal conduct here. Well, there, the, the, I think at some point we've got to examine, you know, whether, you know, the so-called Ferguson effect, the Baltimore effect, cops can't do their jobs because that's they're, the problem. You know, now they're now they're scared to death to do their jobs for fear they're going to get indicted. On House Joint Resolution 88, the clerk will report the title of the joint resolution. House Joint Resolution 88. Joint Resolution The question is, will the House on reconsideration pass the joint resolution, the objections of the president to the contrary notwithstanding, the gentleman from Minnesota, Mr. Klein, is recognized for one hour. is on ordering the previous question. Those in favor say aye. Those opposed say no. 
The opinion of the chair, the eyes have it. Gentleman from Minnesota. A recorded vote is requested. Those favoring a recorded vote will rise. A sufficient number having risen, a recorded vote is ordered. Members will record their vote by electronic device. Clause 9 of Rule 20. This 15-minute this 15-minute vote on ordering the previous question will be followed by a five-minute vote on passing the joint resolution. If the gentleman is afraid to vote and afraid to debate, and given the weakness of his arguments and his position, his fear is well-founded. Just a vote. With equal time, talking about radical Islam. Radical Islam I know what you're trying to say. But corruption is corruption is bad. Okay, but like, but, let's but, talk about that for a second. Well, I should say the uh, uber wealthy who, who have protection, had that protection, but individuals who are law-abiding citizens in your district should not. Let's talk about that. Well, law-abiding citizens just shouldn't have to carry a gun. You know that. So you're not going to push me in that direction. But you're protected by guns all over the place here in the Capitol. <laughs> well, that's a little different. I think we deserve... I think we need to be protected down here. Oh, we need to be protected, not the people. Of course, that was the Occupy Democratic Party last night uh, having a little fun on the House floor. And they were out there chanting, no bill, no break, and singing, we shall overcome. And that was Louis Gohmert, you know, saying radical Islamic terrorism. And it went on and on. We'll show you a lot of the video of this tonight on Hannity 10 Eastern on the Fox News Channel. Pretty, you know, I will say this, what I said earlier. This is Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Clinton's party. This is what you'd expect at Occupy Wall Street. Black Lives Matter. This is what you'd expect from a guy that learned at the altar of a radical communist, Frank Marshall Davis, was radicalized through Acorn and Alinsky. By the way, both Hillary and Obama Alinskyite disciples. This is a guy that went to Reverend Wright's church. This is a guy that hung out with Ayers and Dorn. This is now the Democratic Party. You see this 
this on the streets with different demonstrations as they as they pop up. You see it with Occupy Wall Street. And this is now the representative representation. There is no such thing any longer as a moderate blue dog Democrat. They don't exist. This party has been taken over by the hard left. That's why Bernie Sanders is doing so well. That's why Obama got elected twice. That's why Hillary is just a third term of Obama. Maybe worse in the end. Who knows? All right. 800-941-SEAN. Toll free telephone number. You want to be a part of the program. All right. We got to go to our buddy Tavares. I guess we can't play the music anymore because of uh, the massive legal fees that the band Tavares wants to charge me for playing the stupid song more than a woman. The Lord Lawyers for Tavares, not Tavares. Lawyers for all musicians won't let us play their songs except Florida Georgia Line, which gave us direct permission to play anything we want, and we love Florida Georgia Line. They're our buddies. What's up, Tavares? How are you? Hey, Sean Hannity. Let me tell you one thing, man. What's up, buddy? But uh, I, I'm great. First of all, I know you don't like. You're a humble guy. You do things out the kindness of your heart. Your your callers might not know, uh, might not know this. You always had my back ever since uh, I was single. Eight years been eight years now. Ever since I was a single male out here, you was trying to put a chastity belt on me years ago, telling me to stop having sex. And before I was married. When I lost my job, you were like, what can I do? No, no, what is it that I can do to get you another job? I was like, no, Sean, I'm going to find my own job. Recently, Sean, you just, you just, uh, you did a big thing, man. You, you paid for my school, my CDL school, and um, you now, did a great I gave you, I only had one condition. What was my condition? That I stuck through it and I, and I, and uh, That's that right. I, I wouldn't quit. I, no, the, I you, did, you I can't did, quit. I, I didn't quit. Oh, did, I didn't quit. Oh, Sean. I well, got you, my CDL you're, today. Oh, you're finished. I got my CDL today, Sean. Wow, today's Lord the day you graduate. So you graduated today. I I I, I finished the course. I uh, actually I still have hours to go, but uh, Monday we have to make up for Memorial Day, uh, and I have to make that and up. So Monday, that means but... you're going to be an over the road trucker, and are they going to help you get a job and everything? Yeah, my school is going to help me get a job. I have fantastic instructors. Instructors. Uh, yeah. I mean, I went I went from not knowing how to basically do anything on a truck now i can i can do donuts in it now you know <laughs> i'm not i'm not, not going to do it but sean handy let me tell well, you man well, what well, go ahead i appreciate i appreciate you you've been a blessing to my family this just changed my life completely man although you know people might think that we have differences you're my best friend people don't understand this i'm 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 a better friend than Big Baby James. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone you know? can top Sweet Baby James. He's family, so he's married <laughs> to my sister. Let me just hey, let me just hey, say this, Tavares. Listen, listen. All you wanted was a, a ladder, and all I That's gave it. you was a ladder. This is was your dream. You wanted to get this yes. done. You know, Always God did. has put me in a position a little bit that I can help people, and I like to do Man, that. You're a blessing. And all I can say is, you know, there's a good feeling, isn't there, that you now know? I mean, this happens to be an area where there are a lot of jobs right now. It happens exactly. to be, you know, your training now is going to make you a valuable employee for a lot of companies. When oil gets back up and running again, they're paying drivers for oil massive amounts of money. Massive. Exactly. And uh, exactly. that's that's going to represent, you may have to move at some point. I know you you like it there in Greenville, but. Yeah, I, we're out of here. We're out of here. Me and, my, me and my wife, my son, we're out of here. Where are you going? Uh, you know where you're going yet? Uh, I'm not sure, you know, whatever well, my wife likes. It's up there. <laughs> hey, you know what, Linda, why don't we. Happy wife, happy Life. Why don't we put Why don't we put them in touch with our friends in the oil industry? Because they're still looking for drivers, even though there's been a little bit of a slowdown. But with your training, we can get you a job that's probably going to pay you six figures. Oh my goodness! I know. What are 
going to do with all, what are you going to do with all that money? You know, here's uh, the thing. I talk on this program and I throw out numbers every day. And people think it's cuz I like to hear myself talk. It's not it's not it. You know, my life experience, Tavares, of really struggling early in my life. I mean, right. I didn't have I had 200 bucks in the old stone bank when I lived in Rhode Island. That was it. I had no money. I worked with my landlord. I fixed up his apartment so that would pay my rent or I'd fix his barn or I'd paint his house or I'd, you know, cut his lawn. I did whatever I had to do. And I remember not being able to afford to go out for McDonald's, never mind anything else. And that life lesson taught me more than I could ever learn in any school, any place, anywhere. All right. So now I have money. But when I got into radio, I work for free. I went and got into radio. I never thought I'd be successful. I got into radio. My first paid job was $19,000 a year. And, you know, barely enough to pay your rent and, and a cheap little car that I had. So anyway, I just tell you this. You take this valuable skill you've developed and you worked hard to get. You take care of your family. First and foremost, yes. you got to be a good dad and a good husband. Yes. And uh, you go be successful. Save your money. Money equals freedom. And enjoy yes. your life. All right? Yes. And Sean, what you told me, what I would, what, what would I do with a nice paying job? First of all, I'm going to pay it for it. What you did for me, I can't stop until I help somebody else with and do the same thing that you did for me. And uh, I yeah, just, By, by I the just way, if you, you vote my, for my, Hillary, if you vote for Hillary, you're going to screw it all up. Your opportunities are going to, you know, dwindle. Right. And I think, and, and see, I think it's illegal. Now you sound like you're buying my vote. I'm not buying, no, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I did no, not did. offer money for vote. I'm just saying. No, you did. No, I, you did. No, you did. That's just me being, you know, that's just me That's being you Tavares. being a typical wise-ass Tavares. I know that's who you are. <laughs> No, man, you're great, man. I love you, man. My family loves you, man. We listen, appreciate listen, it, Listen, Anything uh, you ever need me to I, do, I'm there for you, man. I want you to go live your life. Go and be happy and go take care of your family and uh, work hard. Work as much overtime as you can. Pack up as no much problem. money in the bank as you can. Don't risk exactly. it. Exactly. You know, be, you know what, one, thing, one other way to make money. Um, try and buy, like, the cheapest house on the block. And try right. and buy the house that needs to be fixed up. Needs paint. Right. Maybe needs, you know, some work, some, some elbow grease. And maybe as you live in there with your family, all right, you work on the kitchen first. You you paint it first. You do this. You do that. And then you build up equity and value in that home. And that by the time you sell it, you make an extra hundred grand. And that's that's serious money for your future. Exactly. All right, exactly. my friend. God bless you. Thank, Thank you. Thank all right. You. Well, that turned out. You know what? I'm very proud of him. He did so well with that course. He finished it pretty fast. I mean, what was it? Three, four month thing? Yeah. But you know what? That's all he wanted. He wants to work. Uh, Bill is in uh, Florida. Bill, how are you? Glad you called. What's up, Bill? Hey, how you doing, Big Sexy? Big Sexy? I've been called yeah. a lot of stuff in my day. Not that. <laughs> I want to know how to vote for you for all the fame. I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about it. Oh, Bill, but, it. I, but I'll talk about it, Bill. No, no, no. Turn, oh, great. Turn the yeah, mic yeah. off. So, so Bill. Oh, good grief. Here we go. So You set this call up, didn't you? I would never no, do that. Didn't. No, she didn't. All right, nobody wants to hear this. Jason. And maybe you let her on the show a little more and maybe you can call the... Uh, Linda, Lauren, Sean show, but nope, it was all me. Lauren, you hear Bill, Lauren laughing in the back. Right. Lauren, Lauren doesn't talk. Lauren just kind of sits there. She's quiet as a mouse. remember the days when you encouraged her to talk? And I tried. Th- it took forever to get her. You what you sow there, buddy. Well, Linda never shuts up since the day I met her for crying out loud. I don't like I public you, You're a gentleman. You're funny. Uh, you love your God, country, and your people. Uh, same as I do. I think you deserve it. So now that we've got that out of the way, All right, you thanks. can cast your vote. You can text Hannity to 36500-36500. It's free. Don't waste and, your money. And, um, you know, check with your, check with your, you know, local. Don't waste your, your money. Your, wherever you subscribe, Verizon AT&T, make sure your local rates apply. I can't get into all that legalese, but look it up. Make sure. Find out if you can afford to uh, 
text Hannity to 36500. Right, are we done? Thank and you, you can go to Hannity.com for more information. And you can always oh call 800-941-SEAN and talk to Lauren and Linda and, and Ethan and Jason. And we'll be more than happy you to done give now? you this information. Are you you have until June 30th, people. So get out there and text. Are you done? Are you done now? Okay. I'm done. Let's get back to our phones. Raleigh uh, Durham. Scott is next. What's up, Scott? How are you? Hey, Sean. Thanks for taking my call. I um, just wanted to give you a uh, call, shout out, uh, and just to uh, let you know a lot of your discussions regarding uh, the abuse of um, citizens within the Muslim um, countries, that how they're treated, if they're they're non-believers, and 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 how they uh, proceed. I have a, a physician colleague who uh, is of Syrian descent, grew up in Kuwait, from a pretty well-to-do family, and I've worked with him for the last four years. On a day-to-day basis, we talk about the, just the general chit-chat. Never once have we ever discussed religion or political views from, from any means. We got, we got about 30 seconds, so make your point. I'm interested so in what you're saying. The general, uh, this individual came to me this past Monday and wow. literally shut my door, and he, he broke down and cried. He said, I just want to let you know, I, he said, my whole my whole life from the time that I grew up, I was taught that that Islam, if you are a non-believer as a Muslim, you, you know, you should be killed. And he basically verified everything that, that you've been telling individuals and people deny it. That's from the San Bernardino to France to Belgium and, and now Orlando. Listen, I let, let me say this in response. And I, I appreciate you confirming that. But I want to say this. You see the Islamization of Europe. You see it happening all over the world. There is a clash of culture that is so severe. I personally think. If you come from a country and you grow up under Sharia, it's so incompatible with our values. We must have a perfect vetting system or no system. That's the way it's got to be or we're going to lose our country like Europe is being lost before our eyes. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.